I want to give you a piece of advice that somebody gave me a long time ago. It turned out to be really good advice. And the advice is never read a Bible verse. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that sounds like really bad advice, even coming from a person like me. But then a second later, I'm going to bet some of you figure out, figured out what's going on here. And that is, look what I said here. And the person giving me advice wasn't never read the Bible. He's like, never read a verse. Read several verses. Read the whole chapter. And, I mean, there's a lot of books where you can read the entire book in like half an hour. Read the whole thing. Okay? It's going to make a lot more sense. And, and I'm bringing this up because there's a real habit that people get caught into reading a passage. You never had that where you go and you read around and you're like, oh, that does not mean what I thought it meant. Okay? I think that's everybody, everybody's had that happen. If that, if that hasn't happened to you, it's probably because you're just not reading very much. What's funny about this, too, is I've heard verses used to support a conclusion where I actually think the conclusion is completely sound. They just use the wrong verse. And there's danger in that. We'll get to that in a little bit. I'm going to talk, so I want to talk about a few verses that I've heard in the Churches of Christ, not so here, but in Churches of Christ taken out of context. So like Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered together, there I am with you also. And I've heard people say, see, this is the technical definition of the assembly. We'll talk about that. Uh, how about Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so if I want it, it's going to happen. Actually, there's a flip to it. How about Amos 3.3? Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Okay. And so we'll talk about that in a few other passages. Now, I was talking to somebody a while ago, and in the congregation I was at, they said it was really important that if somebody quoted scripture that you should open your Bible and read the scripture until you make sure whether they quoted it right. Now, I don't have any problem with that. But I was talking to this person. I said, yeah, but here's the thing about it. It's not usually that people quote the passage wrong in the word-for-word sense of it. They quote it out of context. That's far more likely. And the person said, no, 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 you're wrong. He said, because I remember like 40 years ago when somebody quoted a passage wrong from the pulpit and he had caught it and he talked to the person and the person admitted, that, oh, whoops, you know, I... Didn't mean to say it like that. But I thought, I think you've just proved my point. Because he had to go back 40 years to find an example of that. And I know for a fact that in this congregation, passages were misused. And how do I know that? Because I preached there. Okay? Let's just say mistakes were made. Okay, so that happens. But usually it's the context that's the problem. So let me give you an example of one. You ever seen those little passage a day type calendar things? So how about this one? You get to July 3rd, Thursday, July 3rd, and, you, and you, you, know, you, you move the prior page, and it says, If thou therefore will worship me, all will be thine. That's a pretty good passage. Actually, that's in the Gospel according to Luke, right where it said it is. And you might be thinking, well, when did God say that? Well, God didn't say that. This is a quote from the devil. So I'm going to bet there's a lot of people looking at that passage and have no clue what it actually means. Or this is a Satanist calendar, which I suppose is possible. <laughs> and it's funny because you, I actually started to make a, a project where I wanted to have one of these verse day things, but every verse is taken out of context. And that sounds really weird, but the whole point was to get you to read the passage. And you're like, okay, I know that doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. And then you would read it, and then you would flip it over, and it would give you the answer in the context. And so I was building this list, and let me tell you, it's not hard to find. It's not hard to make a list of misused passages. Just recently, I was listening to, you know how YouTube posts videos, and it says, well, if you like this, you'll like this other one. So I, I watched one of those other ones, and I did not like it. And this guy was saying how... 
he, he said God would protect you from ever getting sick. And he meant this literally, like you would just never get sick. And he called it the PS91 Pandemic Protection Policy. Okay, And to get there, he read Psalm 91. Okay, Psalm 91 says, As for you, the one who lives in the shelter of the Sovereign One and resides in the protective shadow of the Mighty King, I say the best, this about the Lord, my shelter and my stronghold, my God in whom I trust. He will certainly rescue you from the snare of the hunter and from the destructive plague. And so he keeps reading it. He read the words right. But when he read this, I started laughing. And the reason I started laughing is because somebody else quoted Psalm 91 wrong, like this guy did, out of context. That being the devil, okay? In Luke 4. If you go back to Luke 4, uh, go with me to Luke 4. We're going to start reading in verse 9. And here the, Jesus is being tempted. And, the, and it says, verse 9, And the devil brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, here's Psalm 91, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and with their hands they will lift you up, so that that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Okay, so the, the devil doesn't so much quote the passage wrong in terms of the words, but he quotes it out of context, and Jesus will have none of it. Jesus knows it's more complicated than that. And Jesus responds to him in verse 12 and says, and Jesus answered him, it is said, he quotes here from Deuteronomy, you are not to put the Lord your God to the test. Now, this person in this video was saying that he would go to the airport and he's like, yeah, I would like to get a, a ticket for $20 to Dubai, both ways. And people are like, you're crazy. And he says, but I'll make, I can give you something that will cure every disease and you'll never get sick. Now, he didn't mean this metaphorically. He meant this literally, okay? This is... <laughs> There were a lot of other weird things in that video. But if you look at this passage, Jesus knows that Psalm 91 isn't saying that good people won't suffer. If you read to the end of the Gospels, Jesus dies, right? He knows it's more complicated than that. And Jesus knows his scripture because he, he quotes here from Deuteronomy. And if you look at the context of that, that's referring to a time in which God, people had forced God's hand by really just misunderstanding things, right? They were trying to force God's hand. And he calls that testing God. And I think there's something significant here that the passages that we see here with the devil tempting involves a passage being taken out of context. I mean, it should tip, tip us off that, you know, this is something we got to be worried about. And it's really easy to get this wrong. Now, to be clear, I think most of the time people take them out of context and they're not doing so malignantly. They just don't know. So let's let's go ahead and take one example. This is like Matthew eighteen verse twenty. So Matthew eighteen verse twenty. So let me read this, and then I'll read the context. Verse twenty says, "For where two or three are assembled in my name, I am there among them." Now, I'd heard this passage growing up many, many, many times. And I would hear it like if we had a bunch of snow and not many people showed up, and they'd say, oh, well, you know, not many people here, but where two or three are gathered together. And it was taken as a technical definition of the assembly. If it has two or three, then it's considered assembly. And listen, I don't take issue with that per se, other than that this is not the passage that you should be using. Okay, so why do I say that? Well, first of all, there's some questions that should pop in your head that may be a little bit weird. Like... If I'm alone, is Jesus not with me? And I've heard people say, well, no, no, he is then too. Okay, but then 
Why does it say when two or three? Then why the qualification? It, you get you to look at that. It's like, well, that is a little weird. But it makes more sense when read in context. So let's bounce back a little bit, starting into verse 15. Verse 15 says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault when the two of you are alone. And if he listens to you, you have regained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others, that would be two to three, so that at the testimony of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, treat him like a Gentile or a tax collector. So it turns out when you read this in context, it's not actually giving you a technical definition of the assembly. It's talking about how you deal with sin with your fellow brethren. It says, you go deal with them alone. Right? It's best if you, if you both can handle it, nobody else needs to know about it, it gets solved quietly. If that doesn't work, then he says you take one or two others. Here, quoting here from Deuteronomy, you get two to three people. And if that doesn't work, then you take it to the church. Here's the funny thing. The church shows up. But it's not the two or three. That's the next step, right? So it's pretty clear he isn't referring to the church per se. Now, there's some other notes in here that I think are noteworthy. Other parts that I think are sometimes taken out of context. Look at verse 18. He says, I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you release on earth will have been released in heaven. Now, look at the terminology here. Depending on your translation, it may make this a little bit hard to see. But look what it said here. It said, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that when you think about how the church works, it's like you and I are bound together by something. And we are bound together by our relationship with God. And that affects our relationship with each other. And when he says it's been bound in heaven, he's saying there is a truth in heaven that you need to make sure is clear on this place too. So when we go to somebody and we withdraw from them, what we're saying is we're not saying we're kicking you out. We're, we're ending your relationship. We're saying your relationship was already ended, right? It's something that was true up there. We need to make clear between ourselves because if we don't, we will have people in our church that we act like we have a relationship with and they don't have a relationship with God. And that's a problem. And I say this because when you read this in context, Jesus makes this clear that he's looking at this as a way to build, rebuild that relationship. He wants the relationship back. Okay? Also, this binding and loosing is important, too, because I've heard Catholics will use Matthew 16, which talks about this binding and loosing. And see that Peter was made the Pope. He's binding. He's got the keys to heaven, and he can do this binding and loosing. But if that's true... This just granted popehood to anybody when there's two or three gathered, right? Now, they're not going to grant you that, but that's inconsistent. And then he goes on. Look at verse 19. Again, I tell you the truth. If two of you on earth agree about whatever you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. And this is the passage we started with. For where two or three are assembled in my name, I am among them. And so he's saying, that, look, if you, if you agree on this, it's as if I am there with you too. That's what Jesus is saying. Look, I agree with this. If you do it in the right way and you do the right thing that Jesus has asked us to do, it's like Jesus himself is doing it. And this, this idea shows up both in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Uh, for example, Second Chronicles 19.6, the judges there are told to be careful, carefully consider what you do, because you are not judging for mere mortals, but for the Lord who is with you. 
whenever you give a verdict. Okay, so you see, there's a lot of comparisons here. See, God's with you if you're doing the right thing. If you're doing the sort of thing that God would expect you to do. If you come to the New Testament, check out 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3. And here, he's talking about how to deal with this same problem in the church. And he says, even though I am absent physically, I am present in spirit. Now, Paul's not saying he's floating around in spirit between the churches. But he's saying it's practically like I'm there with you. Keep reading. He says, I have already judged the one who did this, just as though I were present. Like, you guys do this sort of thing that you were, you're doing the right thing. It's as if I'm there too. I would have done the same thing. I think that's what Paul is saying here. Keep going. And in the next verse, he says, whenever you gather in the name of our Lord Jesus, I am with you in spirit along with the power of our Lord Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus was saying before. Now, if you keep going on, there's even more context that, that gives this more of a positive spin. So we're talking about withdrawal language. You don't consider that a positive thing. If you, if you look forward to that, then, well, something's seriously wrong with you. But, but we have to do this, right? But you've got to remember that Jesus thinks this is a way, this is how you keep a relation, how you rebuild a relationship. And I say that because Jesus says this. Look at Peter's response in verse 21. And Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother who sins against me? As many as seven times? And Jesus says to him, not seven times, but I tell you, seventy-seven times. And so there's forgiveness right there. You don't have to go very far to see it. And if you look in the context, if you zoom out again, you're going to even see more of this. Because just before this passage that we just read tonight is the parable of the lost sheep. Where people, we have to go, when, when somebody walks away, we run after them. Right? This is bringing them back. This is, Jesus sees this as an ability to have a relationship and to rebuild it. And then when you go after, you get the parable of the unforgiving servant. Where this, this, somebody who gets forgiven of a large debt, but they, they don't forgive other people of smaller debts. And Jesus condemns this. And so it's, it's all there, right? Jesus sees this as a way, oddly enough, to build a relationship, not to end it. All right, how about, let's go to Philippians 4.13. It says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So this is taken, I heard somebody describe it. They said, this is the Superman verse. You can do all things. You can fly and have laser eyes or whatever else Superman does. Now, this is popularized by Tim Tebow. And so he's got this little thing. Josh actually explained to me why they put this little black stuff under there. But I'm not really into sports, so I really probably should not be making sports metaphors. But it says in there, right, Philippians 4.13. And a lot of times what people take this as is, whatever I want, God will make me successful. I remember somebody saying that they were about to go to court, and they said, I know I will win because I can do all things through God who strengthens me. Here's the funny thing. The context actually means less Things will turn out the way you want, and more, that you can be content when they don't turn out the way you want. Okay, let's go up to verse 10. This is Philippians 4, verse 10. Now, what I want you to see here, it starts off, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have three sections. Paul's going to say, I had great joy the fact that, that you knew about the issues that I was having. So it kind of refers to this issue. Then he says, but basically, I'm paraphrasing here, don't worry about me, though, because no matter what happens, I have found a way to be content. And then he comes back to says, but thank you for worrying about me. Okay, verse 10. I have great joy in the Lord now, because at last you have expressed your concern for me. Now, I know you were concerned before, but had no opportunity to do anything. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content 
in any circumstance. I've experienced times of need and times of abundance. In any circumstance, I have learned the secret of contentment. Whether I go satisfied or hungry, have plenty or nothing, I am able to do all things through the one who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you did well to share with me in my troubles. And I heard somebody saying a long time ago that people refer to Jesus as the bridge over troubled waters. And I remember this this guy saying it. He said, you know, that's really not true. It's not like you just sail over trouble, but you go through it. And so Jesus, in a certain sense, is a bridge through, but not over, troubled waters. And so if if Tim is getting this right, now who knows, maybe he is, this passage would be more applicable, not if he wins, but if he loses. Here's another passage. Leviticus 10. It tells the story of two of Aaron's sons. And they're doing their work in the temple, but they do something that's wrong, and then the text describes what happens to them after the fact. Now, you know what story I'm talking about, right? Eleazar and Ithamar, right? No. Well, here's the thing. There is a pair of stories, or two stories, about a pair of Aaron's sons. And you have to read them back to back to make the full understanding of what's going on there. And if you don't, you're going to read them wrong. Okay, so let's start off. Let's go up. It's Leviticus 10. Let's start off in verse 1. And when I read this, I want you to look for three things. One, I want you to look for God's response. Then look for Aaron's response. And then look for Moses' response. Okay, 10 verse 1. Then Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his fire pan and put fire in it, set incense on it, and presented strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. So fire went out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them so that they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke. Among the ones close to me, I will show myself holy, and in the presence of all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron kept silent. Moses then called to Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, Aaron's uncle, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary to a place outside the camp. And so they came near and carried them away in their tunics to a place outside the camp, just as Moses had spoken. Then Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar, to, to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his other two sons, Do not dishevel the hair of your heads, and do not tear your garments, so that you do not die, and so that the wrath does not come on the whole congregation. Your brothers, all the house of Israel, are to mourn the burning which the Lord has caused. But you must not go out from the entrance of the meeting tent, lest you die, for the Lord's anointing oil is on you. And so they acted according to the word of Moses. Okay, so we have God's response. God destroys them. Aaron's response specifically says that he was silent. He didn't say anything. And Moses says, don't even grieve over this. Like, we have to make a public statement, I think is what he's basically saying there. Now he goes on in verses 8 through 11. Now, then the Lord spoke to Aaron, do not drink wine or strong drink, you and your sons with you, when they enter into the meeting tent, so that you do not die, which is a perpetual statute throughout your generations, as well as to distinguish between the holy and uncommon, and between the unclean and the clean. 
and to teach the Israelites all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. As I said before, there's the description of God's, Aaron's, and Moses' response. Now we're going to read of another pair of Aaron's sons who make a mistake. But read the text closely and look for how the response is there, how it is different. So in verses 12 through 15, the instructions are given to Eleazar and Ithamar how to, how to take over. Verse 12. The Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his remaining sons. Take the grain offering, which remains from the gifts of the Lord, and eat it, un- and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You must eat it in a holy place, because it is your allotted portion, and the allotted portion of your sons, from the gifts of the Lord, for this is what I had been commanded. Also, the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the contribution offering you must eat in a ceremonial clean place, you and your sons and daughters with you. For they have been given as your allotted portion and the allotted portion of your sons from the, the peace offering sacrifices of the Israelites. The thigh of the contribution offering and the breast of the wave offering, they must bring in addition to the gifts of the fat parts to wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. And it will belong to you and your sons for a perpetual statute, just as the Lord commanded. Okay, so they're preparing Eliezer and Ithmar, giving instructions so they'd be ready to do this. But they make enough, but they too make a mistake, verse 16. Later, Moses sought diligently for the sin offering, male goat, but it had actually been burnt. And so he became angry at Eleazar and Ithamar, Aaron's remaining son, saying, Why did you not eat the sin offering in the sanctuary? For it is most holy, and he gave it to you to bear the iniquity of the congregation and to make atonement on behalf before the Lord. See here, its blood was not brought into the holy place within. You should certainly have eaten it in the sanctuary, just as I commanded. But Aaron spoke to Moses. See here, just today, they presented their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and such things have happened to me. If I had eaten a sin offering today, would the Lord have been pleased? And when Moses heard this explanation, he was satisfied. Now you see the reactions, they're different. God didn't react the same way. He didn't just come and and kill them. Moses, actually he says he was angry at the beginning, but then when he heard the explanation, it says he was satisfied. And Aaron, who was silent before, actually spoke up to defend them and saying, well, such things have befallen me. And I'll tell you that I think this is important because if you only have half the message, you are going to miss the message. Because it, it shows us that God draws a distinction. He is a God of justice who must be treated as holy, but he's also one who shows mercy for mistakes. And I mention this because I will confess to you that for many years I did not look forward to going to worship. Not here. And the reason was because of Leviticus 10, or more appropriately, half of Leviticus 10. And I couldn't have told you that second story. I knew of only a pair, okay? One pair of Aaron's sons. I didn't know about the other part. And my takeaway from this, and the way it was taught to me, was that any mistake that you make in worship is a critical mistake, and you're out. And so I viewed God's long-suffering as being measured in milliseconds. And so it's weird to say this, but in my mind... Coming to the assembly was not where you got closest to God's grace, but where you were the farthest from it. 
And, you know, we talked about how we come to worship and our batteries get recharged. But honestly, mine got drained when I was thinking of it like that. And I'll tell you, too, that when you start viewing these passages without the whole story, without balance, it'll change the congregation. And I say this because I remember somebody coming to me and they said, I had a problem with your prayer. I'm like, uh-oh, okay. I may agree with you depending on what the reason was. And he said, because you said Lord in it. And I was a little surprised by this, but I understood where they're going with this. Now, I always open my prayers, and I did so at the time, by saying, Dear Heavenly Father, okay, because I didn't want people to think I was praying to Jesus. I'm not, I'm not waiting in one way or another on that topic. But regardless, I knew that I wasn't going to be offensive by praying to, to the Father. And so I always opened it, Dear Heavenly Father. But somewhere else in the prayer, I used the word Lord. And so they're like, well, but were you talking about the Father or were you talking about the Son? I was like, well, I opened the prayer with my Heavenly Father. It's like, yeah, but maybe you changed, maybe I changed to be like praying to Jesus. And okay. Now, you may think that's weird. You may think it's weird that somebody holds a view like that. But if you honestly believe that your relationship with God hangs on such a thin thread that if I pray the wrong prayer, I'm lost, and everybody else who says amen is lost, if you honestly think that, then their viewpoint makes a lot of sense. The problem was not their viewpoint there. The problem was that they didn't know the passages well enough. They didn't know the context. And as time went on, I actually saw about that second part of the story. But here's what's strange about this, is that it was the source. Because I'd heard some people talking about some book written by some Church of Christ members, maybe former Church of Christ members, who were critical of some of the things that the Church of Christ taught. And they're like, ah, this book's so terrible. So what do I do? I buy the book and I read it. And so I'm reading this book, and I'll tell you, I did not agree with everything in that book. They So not everything in it was right, but also not everything in it was wrong. And they explain in this book about how, well, you have to read the whole thing. And there's a story of L.A.'s Arithmar. And I had never heard about this. This completely blew my mind. And the thing is, when I read it, I felt two things. The first thing was relief. Because it wasn't the passage. I, I, I totally understood this passage now. And I knew it in a different way. And, and you remember Tommy, he early on, I think this was before he even moved here, he preached a sermon about how you can find grace in the Old Testament. And there's a mentality that the New Testament is about grace and the Old Testament entirely about judgment. And he that, that is just not true. There is grace all over the Old Testament. And this was one of those passages. And so I felt relief. Let me tell you the second thing I felt. It was anger. Because I thought, why didn't they just tell me? Right? I knew that you were supposed to treat God as if he was holy. I knew that. I just, you just should have taught me both of them. Why couldn't you just tell me both? That's all I wanted. And you can judge for yourself if you think this makes it better or worse. I actually think this makes it better. But when I talk to people, I realize... But they didn't know about it, right? They had harped on some of this, these, the first part of Leviticus 10 over and over and over again. And when I, I bring them the second story, I could see the look of shock. They didn't know it was there. So two things you need to think about, two things you need to know. One is that you can really mess somebody up for a long time if you take these things out of context. And, and I say this because... I've known people who had some of these passages taken out of context and just drilled into them when they were a kid. 
And later they come to realize that that's not the full story. And so if you ask them, they'll give you, a, they'll give you the full story and they'll give you a very clear answer about how to, to work this all up into a single way that makes sense with God's justice and God's mercy, both of them intact. And so intellectually, they will give you the right answer. But at the same time, they just can't shake this feeling that maybe God really is just this cosmic accountant looking for your mistakes. And so intellectually, they give you the right answer, but they, they just can't shake this because it was just pushed into them for so long. And what can happen is that when you get caught taking a passage out of context, people start asking, well, how much of what you told me was taken out of context? They start to distrust some of the other things. In Matthew 25, verse 23, Jesus says, if you're faithful in little, you'll be given more. Okay, If you're faithful in little, you can presumably be faithful in big, right? But the opposite kind of applies too, that if it's, if you've been proven to be faithless in small things, they start to wonder, well, what about the big things? Did you get those wrong too? And I'm saying this because I've heard of people who walked away from the faith. Because they questioned a passage, they found that it was taken out of context. And then they questioned another one, and that one was taken out of context. And then they just keep chopping until they're like, I don't even know it's true anymore. They throw out the baby with the bathwater. I've heard of that happening. Fortunately, a lot of them come back later. And so that's the other side. That's the second thing you need to know. Which is if it's on, if you're on the other side of that, and you are disappointed with somebody who has taken these passages out of context due to some incorrect reading, that is not a good basis for rejecting God. Okay, so think about it. Rejecting God because somebody has misunderstood God really makes no sense. Why would you reject a right God because of somebody's misunderstanding of God? That doesn't follow. But that's what some people do. And, it, and I'll tell you, reading some of those books from those people that the offered like a corrective to the Church of Christ, it was pretty obvious there was some baggage there. Like, they came off as angry. And what's so weird is I read some of those, I've read some of those, and they would talk about how oh, well, these people have taken grace and they have not understood grace. And those same people can't show grace back to those same people that they say have gotten it wrong. And you just read this, you're like, oh, the irony, Right? There's a tendency for people to overdevelop one of the themes. Some people overdevelop a theme of God's mercy, and so they eliminate God's holiness. And others overdevelop God's justice, and they leave no grace. Or put another way, it's like some people want the story of Nadab and Abihu, but they don't want the story of Eliezer and Ithamar. And some people do precisely the opposite. And we need to be the people who accepts both. So they're in the same chapter. All right, changing gears. Amos 3.3. Can two walk together unless they accept they'd be agreed? So go ahead and turn to Amos 3. I'll give you some time because that's going to be a hard one to find. We don't go to Amos very often. Actually, Tommy probably does. So the verse that I'd heard many, many times is 3.3. Can two walk together unless they be agreed? And... So what they would do is they make the argument. You see, you and I can't be in the same congregation if we don't agree on some item. Okay, so a bunch of questions should pop in your head. Like, well, what kind of issues is Amos talking about? Is Amos talking about, I mean, he, does he divvy up to say here's some really critical issues and here's some less critical issues? Does he say everything is a critical issue? What's he talking about? Okay, so the best way to find out what kind of issues he's talking about is just to read it in context. So let's start in Amos 3, verse 1. 
Listen, you Israelites, to this message which the Lord is proclaiming against you. This message is for the entire clan I brought up from the land of Egypt. I have chosen you alone from all the clans of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Do two walk together except they be agreed? Does a lion roar in the woods if he has not cornered his prey? Does a young lion bellow from his den if he has not caught something? Does a bird swoop down into a trap on the ground if there is no bait? Does a trap spring up from the ground unless it has surely caught something? If an alarm sounds in a city, do people not fear? If disaster overtakes a city, is the Lord not responsible? Certainly the Sovereign Lord does nothing without first revealing His plans to His servants, the prophets. A lion has roared, who is not afraid? The Sovereign Lord has spoken, who can refuse to prophesy? Okay, so if you were looking for that passage to give you some guidance on you know, what kind of issues we should split or not split over, you are very confused right now, okay? Like, oh yeah, it makes sense. I mean, uh, if, uh, if a lion roars, then I am very confused. Okay, Amos isn't talking about that issue at all. And that's the problem. What's actually going on here is that he's giving a series of obviously true statements. And well, I guess not obviously true, unless you're around lions very often. But it's almost like saying... You know, is God's judgment coming? Well, answer me this. Does the sun set in the west? Does the government collect taxes? You'd be like, okay, it's all just very yes, especially that second one. It isn't talking about how we fellowship or disfellowship at all. And I, I have mentioned this to people, and I've had some people push back and say, no, but Luke, yeah, okay, maybe you're right. Maybe that's not the context, but... Doesn't it can't doesn't this, the idea that we have to, to break fellowship when people have whole, totally different views at some point that's still true? Well, I mean, I agree. We just read Matthew eighteen. Okay, if you don't believe in God, we can't be part of the same church. That's not how this works. Okay, so of course. But my problem is is misquoting Amos along the way. That's the problem. And the reason I I say that's a problem is because you need to know that that opens you up for criticism. I mean, imagine you're making a point where, let's just say somebody thinks, we should never withdraw, no matter what. And you bring up Amos 3. And they point out that you've taken it out of context. You sound like you don't know what you're talking about. There's a similar concept where Jehovah's Witnesses, I don't know why they make such a big deal. Well, actually, I have a theory. But if you ever talk to them, sometimes they'll say, well, how the, the cross was not like a T-shape or the, you know, either it's not a, they think it's just a pole or something like that. And they make this argument about whether it's a pole. And I keep thinking, like, who cares? Like, I don't, okay, I mean, it's, maybe I care from a historical perspective, but what's the big deal? And I think what's happening is they're trying to drive a wedge of doubt. They're trying to get you to think, well, well, you misunderstood the cross, and so maybe you misunderstand a lot of other things. And then they, they put that wedge of doubt so that they can get other things in there. And if you have taken, if you have made a perfectly good argument and then you misuse the passage, it makes it, people wonder, well, what about the rest of that argument? Maybe that was false too, even when it may not have been. All right. Next one. Let's turn to Hebrews. 1025. Now, this is one where I actually don't, it's not a taken out of context in the sense of there's something that is clearly wrong taken from it. Other than I think that there are times when some people will turn up the volume on one aspect of a passage so loud that you can't hear the other aspects. And so that's what I want to talk about today. So Hebrews 1025, let me turn to that says, not abandoning our own meetings, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and even more so, because you see the day drawing near. 
Okay, so this passage is basically saying is, you should show up to the assembly. Okay, I have no issue with that. No problem whatsoever. But I think sometimes we miss the point of why. Because he actually tells you in this in the context. And all you have to do is look up one verse. Now, in some of your translations, it, it, Hebrews 10.25 sounds like it's starting mid-sentence. I'm sure some of you kind of saw that, which is an indication you should scroll up a bit. Well, scroll up if you're on an iPad. Turn a page if you're in a book. Here's what it says in 10.24. And now he gives you the reason. And let us take thought of how to spur one another on to love and good works. Right? And then he tells you, this is why you should show up at the assembly. So he tells you, this is why you should do it, to stir up good works. And I don't think the good works he's talking about are good works that just happen in this building. I think he's talking about works that happen all week long. And, you know, I referred to the fact, that I think, and you all have said this, about recharging our batteries. We have to recharge our batteries here. I agree. But we have to recharge them for a purpose. Right? We don't fuel up the car but never drive. We don't learn about fishing but never fish. We have to go out and live these things out Presumably throughout the week. And I think if you were to ask the Hebrew writer, he would tell you that assembling is not the end in itself. It's a means to an end. Attendance records are not a spiritual gift. Assembling is not one of the fruits of the Spirit. But make no mistake that assembling is how, is one of the reasons and one of the ways you grow those other gifts. And so out of context, I think it can be used to raise the importance of weekly assembly over the other stuff that you should be doing during the week. As if to say, the only things that count are the things that happen right here in these four walls. And I'll tell you, I mention this in part because I've adjusted my view a bit. In that, it has occurred to me that some of the most engaging, enlightening, and intimate conversations I have had with my brethren happened over a dinner table, or on a drive, or standing out in the parking lot getting eaten up by mosquitoes. Raymond knows what I'm talking about. And and Raymond was telling me, it's like, you remember when we had the apologetic class on Zoom, and how like people didn't just end right at the end of Zoom. We'd have this after-class discussion. And he was saying how like it was a really good discussion, and I agree. I mean, I half wonder if the after-class discussion was better than class. I was teaching it, so, you know, I think that probably was true. But I think we make a mistake if we think that the only good stuff happens in these four walls. Now, we make a mistake on the other side if we think good stuff doesn't happen in these four walls. And have you ever thought about this? Acts chapter 2, verse 46, it says, With one accord, they continued to meet daily in the temple courts to break bread from house to house, sharing their meals with gladness and sincerity of heart. And I've heard people say, but look, that's not the assembly. Okay, I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm not saying this isn't the assembly per se. But, if it's not, what is it? And it seems to be saying that Christians were meeting on a day-to-day basis. And I think what Luke is saying is they got it. They understood. Right? Were they assembling also? Of course. But it was they weren't just doing Hebrews 10.25. They were doing Hebrews 10.24, which they were stirred up to good works. Look at what he says there. Sharing their meals. Look in the context of the passage. It says they shared everything. They didn't just share meals. Anytime a need arise, people would sell their stuff to make take care of each other. Right? So something was happening right on Sunday. And that's why it was all happening right every day of the week. And so we just have to be careful not to turn up the volume on one and miss the bigger picture here. 
And so I think the author of Hebrews would tell you that the best way to know if assembling is working is you look and see what happens the rest of that week. Because it's not the attendance records on Sunday that are necessarily the best indicator. It's what happens the rest of the week when people are stirred up to these good works. And and if you ask me, why do I think that things here in Avon are right? I'll tell you it's not because of our attendance records. It's because I bet you almost any day of the week, we have people here that are meeting together over a shared meal because they love one another. And every day of the week, people here are praying for one another. And have you noticed that every time a need arises, people rush to fill it? That tells us that what is happening on Sunday is working. And I think that is what he would tell you. And so I'm saying, don't fail to come on the assembly, Hebrews 10.25. Just make time for the other stuff too, Hebrews 10.24. So another verse that's sometimes taken a little bit out of context is James 5, 16. He says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power to prevail. Now, I say this is taken slightly out of context because I've heard this oftentimes brought up, and it's brought up in the sense of, so if you, if you sin, then of a public nature, come sit on the front pew on a Sunday, and then we'll publicly take care of it. Now, that, that would be one way you could do this, okay? Clearly, it's one way. But I actually think it's more than that. Because what about sins of a not public nature? I mean, James does not necessarily limit it to that. And we oftentimes talk about us being a church family. Ryan Cummings had said something recently at Recharge at the Witsits, and he was saying how home is where you are known. He didn't say where you know, it's where you are known. And he cites passages, so this is, this is scripturally correct. And I think he's onto something there. Because your family, home, consists of the people who know your flaws, and they love you anyways. And so we have to get to this closeness, this intimacy, where we can, we can say, I need help on something. And it doesn't necessarily have to be on us any, any day of the week. But we have to get that intimacy and that closeness to be able to do that. And that is part, I think, of James, what James is talking about here. And here's the thing about families. Is that despite knowing your faults, they love you anyways. And what that means is that if you have those faults, you have to know that they will love you anyways. And so if you do have that need tonight and you do want to